Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Recently, I had the opportunity to host author and journalist Michael Levitin at Diablo Valley College for the Journalism Speaker Series there. Levitin's new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, celebrates the 10th anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement. We talked about the legacy of Occupy, the meme of the 99% versus the 1%, and the many offshoots the movement spawned, from Fight for 15 and global climate strikes to the rise of Bernie Sanders and Black Lives Matter. That event was recorded via Zoom, and on today's Project Censored show, for the hour, we share excerpts of Michael Levitin, Generation Occupy. Stay with us. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguise, and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mickey Huff. I'm chair of the journalism department at Diablo Valley College. I'm a professor of social science, history, and journalism. I'm also president of the Media Freedom Foundation and director of Project Censored, where we study the media in particular. We look at issues of media censorship and propaganda. We look at the many challenges that we face in journalism, even with the free press system that we have in the United States. You can learn more about what we do at projectcensored.org if you like. Our speaker today is someone that I've known for some time, and it's an honor to be here with him as he is going to talk about his latest book. But before we do that, again, this is part of the Journalism Speaker Series at Diablo Valley College where today we are presenting Professor Michael Levitin. He's Assistant Professor of Journalism at Diablo Valley College. He's going to be discussing his new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. This is for the 10th anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Again, I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This is co-sponsored by the Social Sciences, Journalism, History, Communications, the Social Justice Program, Media Freedom Foundation, and Project Censored. On the 10-year anniversary of the Occupy movement, Generation Occupy, Michael Levitin's latest book from Counterpoint Press in Berkeley, sets the historical record straight about the movement's lasting impacts. Far from a passing phenomenon, Occupy Wall Street marked a new era of social and political transformation, reigniting the labor movement, remaking the Democratic Party, and reviving a culture of protest that has put the fight for social, economic, and environmental, and racial justice at the forefront of an entire generation. The Occupy movement changed the way that Americans see themselves and their role in the economy through the language of the 99 versus the 1%. It gave us this meme, this way to communicate and convey what's happening in our culture and our society. But further beyond that, in its demands for fairness and equality, Occupy reinvigorated grassroots activism, inaugurating a decade of youth-led resistance movements that have altered the social fabric. From Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock to March for Our Lives, the Global Climate Strikes, and Hashtag Me Too, bookended by the 2008 financial crisis and the coronavirus pandemic, Generation Occupy attempts to help us understand how we got to where we are today and how we draw on lessons from Occupy in the future. And again, very timely, 
that Michael Levitin's book is published on the 10th anniversary, just last month in September of the Occupy Movement. For those of you paying attention to these types of matters, Federal Reserve figures just released show that the upper 1% of our economy in the United States now control more than all of the wealth of the entire middle class combined. That's a trend that's been going on since the Occupy Movement. But this is also why the Occupy Movement and its lessons are not just historical, they're journalistic. And Michael's book is really a playbook of how things developed, where they were leading, and where they could go in the future. And I think that that's the hope that Michael wants to share with us today and wants to talk to us in more detail. So without further delay, Michael Levitin, in addition to being an assistant professor of journalism here at the Apple Valley College, he is a journalist and co-founding editor of the Occupied Wall Street Journal, which was the Occupy news feature, the alternative media about what was going on in these movements and in the financial sector. And it was giving you the news that you don't really hear in the corporate media. It was very significant in that regard, which is why the Occupied Wall Street Journal and Michael's work came on Project Censored's radar really early on. Michael actually won an award from Project Censored all the way back when he was in high school as a journalist. So Michael's been at this game for quite a long time, and he's internationally been recognized. Later, he earned his master's degree from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and worked as a foreign correspondent in Barcelona and Berlin. Levitin's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Newsweek Time, and The Los Angeles Times, among other publications. His debut novel, Disposable Man, was published in 2019. He teaches journalism here with us at Diablo Valley College and lives in the East Bay with his partner and daughter. His book, Generation Occupy, was recently reviewed by The New York Times and was featured in The Atlantic magazine. And with that, I give you today's featured speaker, Michael Levitin. Thank you for the warm welcome and thanks for everyone for showing up. And I will read just the first page and a half, four paragraphs. That'll set the scene and let us discuss this issue. I think when talking about Occupy Wall Street to people at college, for example, today, this was a full decade ago. And I know that we need to re-remember and recall really what this movement was about. And I want to help set the scene with this opening page. So the first chapter of Generation Occupy is actually called Occupy Generation. A decade after Occupy Wall Street ignited a discussion about wealth inequality, corporate greed, and the corrupting influence of money in politics, people still ask, what happened to Occupy? The movement that sprang to life in Lower Manhattan on September 17, 2011, the 224th anniversary of the signing of the U.S. Constitution, sparked occupations in a thousand towns and cities that seemed for several months to rewire America's political DNA. Polls showed two-thirds of the country backed the ideas and principles of the movement, and for a brief autumn, Occupy captured the global stage as its message resonated around the world. Then, like a storm, it was over. Collapsed both from its own lack of structure and from the state violence that suppressed it, Occupy vanished almost as quickly as it had arrived. One thing most people remember is that Occupy introduced the vocabulary of the 99% and the 1%, putting the crisis of inequality on the map. But that's about it. The movement created no electoral organization, achieved no legislative success, and made no real impact on American political life, 
or so the storyline went. To date, no one has provided an accurate answer to the question, what happened to Occupy? I would contend we are no longer the country we were before Occupy Wall Street revived the labor movement, remade the Democratic Party, and reinvented activism, birthing a new culture of protest that put the fight for economic and social justice at the forefront of a generation. Far from a passing phenomenon, Occupy inaugurated an era of political change in which the demands of the majority continue to grow louder and more focused. It began with the kids. The kids came out and they didn't go home. They targeted Wall Street, the source of our dysfunctional democracy, and issued a singular demand that was all of the demands. Justice, fairness, equality. Their slogan, we are the 99%, inspired hundreds of thousands to move away from their screens and into the streets and squares where the vision of Occupy replaced the unfulfilled promise of Obama's hope and change. They had no leaders. There was no plan. This was not a protest. It was a rebellion, a revolt whose time had come. The seeds they planted took root overnight and quickly spread and multiplied, germinating in the country's consciousness. No one thought young people would remain camped out in parks forever, nor did anyone expect the movement to reshape the political and cultural arenas in the ways that it did. I didn't come to New York looking for a revolution. I came to catch a flight leaving JFK for Berlin, where I had a wife waiting to divorce me. I believe in the adage that when one door closes, another one opens. It may not be the one you expect, but the trick is to walk through it anyway. Perhaps I have been waiting for Occupy. We had all to some degree been waiting for it. And when it finally appeared, I felt I had no choice. It was right there in front of us, staring our generation in the eyes, daring us to act as no moment ever had, to put our convictions and our bodies on the line. We weren't used to doing such things, our generation. You could call us the Obama generation. The iPhone generation works too. We were the anti-globalization and the millennial generation, the unaffordable rent and college debt generation. We were also, of course, the September 11, Iraq war, financial crisis and great recession generation. We were the Occupy generation. Generation Occupy. That is how I decided to embark on this 340-page discussion 10 years after the birth of Occupy Wall Street. Occupy came at a moment when the whole world was sort of in a, a year of upheaval, and the Arab Spring kicked off that social outburst in the Arab world, starting in Tunisia in December and January of 2011. This is, of course, after our Wall Street banks in America, that's what presaged all this, after they took down our global economy through collateralized debt and mortgage-backed securities and all of the shenanigans and games that our Wall Street financiers and hedge funds and the banking corporations and executives, they made out like bandits and they pulled the rug out from the American people, which caused the housing crisis, the financial crisis, the foreclosure crisis, and the Great Recession, which left a generation not just in America, but across the world with these effects of, of joblessness 
and no real opportunity after getting educated in school, for example, nowhere to go. And I think a lot of people for several years expected big protests to break out right here in the heart of where this, this crime, this grand financial crime occurred, but it didn't. It began in the Arab world where they protested for basic democratic rights and freedom and jobs and justice amid a bunch of autocratic regimes in Tunisia and in Egypt, where they kicked out their autocratic rulers and dictators of decades. The movement shifted after Libya and Bahrain and Syria in the Middle East, it moved to Europe where the indignados and people protested in the streets of Spain, camping in dozens and dozens of cities where they took over their cities, demanding the same thing, real democracy now, as they called it, democracia real ya, that was their slogan. And it really ignited in Europe this widespread sense of injustice where 50% of people under the age of 30 were unemployed in places like Greece and Spain and Italy. And Greece had very violent anti-austerity protests. This is the Great Recession. Governments were cutting back on spending. And in Chile, tens of thousands of students flooded the streets and shut down their universities to protest the expense of privatized education, much like in our country where people were locked out of a future. And even in Israel, they set up tent cities with tens of thousands of people protesting unaffordable rent. It was a global movement. And finally, in September of that year, it came to Wall Street. And the movement began with a few hundred people who descended on this little square that no one had ever really heard of, Zuccotti Park, which they renamed Liberty Square. And it ignited, after a week or two, it ignited essentially a viral movement. It was the first time we all had cell phones in our pockets. They were very new, only two, three years that social media, cell phones, uploading footage to the internet, it had just come into being. And Occupy was the first example of the power that people could harness through our new technology and the virality of social movements. And it happened in real time. And I was in New York for that. As I say, I was on my way to Europe, I decided to cancel my flight. I stayed in the park. I slept with the occupiers. I became an occupier and helped found the newspaper. And the movement took off and it went national and it went global and then it collapsed. And people have been asking, as my introduction sort of says, what happened to it? Why did it collapse? But the point of this book is simply that what it did in the months that it existed and the ideas that it sprouted forth are with us today in very powerful ways. You're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we share excerpts of a talk by author and journalist Michael Levitin. He spoke at Diablo Valley College October 14th. He spoke about his new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. Stay tuned for more.
thanks for getting things started, Michael. And thanks for that really interesting introduction. And the story of how you got involved is is a very real one. And that's the way a lot of people end up getting involved in things. It's it's not just that, you know, they they know exactly what they're doing and they just head you know, <laughs> straight toward it. It's that it's on your radar. You know, you were a journalist, you were already writing about a lot of things that were related to what turned into Occupy. And then boom, you were able to see it birthing before your very eyes at Ducati Park. And I think one of the more important things you did that I'd like to have you talk a little bit about, if you could, uh, the Occupied Wall Street Journal was a be the media moment. You couldn't trust the corporate news media to cover Occupy. And they got very frustrated. At first, they tried to ignore Occupy. And then they said it was just a bunch of disgruntled anarchists or people that were all over the place. There were no leaders. It was all going in 50 directions. There were no demands. The corporate press really tried to box Occupy in, in a lot of ways, like traditional protest movements. But as you already alluded, there were a lot of different technological innovations and a lot of different economic factors and inequalities afoot here that really made Occupy almost inevitable, one would say, if you look at the historical trajectory of it, right? How long these things had happened in the US. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to start the Occupied Wall Street Journal, and what were the days like at Zuccotti Park? I had students here at the Apple Valley College getting involved in Oakland, in San Francisco. So when you talk about how Occupy went viral around the world, that it went all across the United States. I had my own students going off and disappearing and staying in the park in Oakland and, you know, coming back a month later to class and saying things like, I had no idea this was going on if you wouldn't have told us about it in class because <laughs> the media is not giving it a fair shake and they're not covering it accurately. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experiences? Absolutely, Mickey. It was a be the media moment. And that's why we started this newspaper. It was obvious, as you say, in the first week, the media, including all the liberal media, the New York Times and whatever news outlets, of course, not to mention the Fox News of the world and CBS and all the ones that don't want anything to do with a bunch of kids camping in a park to protest inequality and corporate greed. It was a message. It fit into sound bites once we said it and once we articulated it. And in fact, what occupies genius, one of its genius creations or additions to America was the way it packaged itself. The mainstream media, as you say, it wasn't capable of putting these big ideas of the corruption of our whole political establishment by executives on Wall Street. The media is not going to talk about issues in that way, because then you're putting the whole system on trial. You're putting capitalism on trial. You're asking people to question the viability and the fairness of a whole system that has pretty much locked out the 99%, right? And made it where we're not up at the top calling the shots. A really slim minority of people are. And the media simply wasn't going to give the movement that fair representation. So very quickly, through memes, through spreading online messages like tax the rich, like uh, end foreclosures now, like the 99% versus the 1%, like Wall Street greed, these really simple, clear uh, memes that spread like wildfire, they were understandable to the public. Those were the messages we wanted to get across through the Occupied Wall Street Journal, which we started in the second week of the movement. Michael Moore, the great filmmaker, 
and Naomi Klein, the very revered author of the left and of political movements on the left, climate change, et cetera, helped um, create a fundraiser. They raised through a Kickstarter campaign and spreading the message. They raised about $75,000 in one week. We all did, but they helped promote it, people like that. And we used that money to launch five editions of this newspaper a big broadsheet that we produced about a half million copies over the next two and a half months. I'd been a journalist for many years before Occupy, but this was the first time to really do what it feels like journalism is meant to do, which is move the needle, get people to sit up, wake them up, give them something that's in their hand that is really going to open people's eyes to the reality around them, but in a language that really reshapes the narrative. And that was really fundamentally, I think, what our Occupy Media, and it went through Twitter. We had the thing called the Tweet Boat, where they coalesced, they brought all these tweets together. We had a filmmaking unit that took tons of people's photography and film work. And we created this kind of media juggernaut that was utterly grassroots, utterly on the ground. And it rewrote the narrative of inequality. It rewrote the economic narrative. Everyone was talking, including Obama, including everyone in Congress, it was all austerity. It was, we need to spend less. We need to cut social programs to get out of this recession. Overnight, as the people I talked to for this book in my reporting acknowledge, and I think the country acknowledges, overnight through Occupy, which only really was visible for several months before they cleared the encampments, the whole narrative changed. The narrative around inequality and the 99% and there not being enough for most of us, while the few at the top are having everything, it rewrote the economic script and we really never went back, actually. It changed and it gave Obama, in fact, his talking points to win re-election the following year. And as we'll get into politically, it had other massive reverberating effects in terms of remaking the message and the ethos of the Democratic Party and the progressive ascendant wing of the Democratic Party. But um, yes, as you say, as Occupy Media, we kind of, uh, I think our lesson, what we taught future movements was that you don't wait around for the mainstream media. You don't wait, you don't have a protest on a Sunday afternoon and think that ABC News and CNNs and the New York Times and the Washington Post are gonna just show up and be excited that you have some new social message. The way that Black Lives Matter has done, the March for Our Lives from the Parkland students, the global climate strikes, you name it, the resistance against Donald Trump. It, it's not as though people waited for the media to cover it. They did it themselves, but we kind of pioneered thanks to the new technology and the innovative nature of Occupy at that moment in history and the desperation of people to see something new in the streets, shouting what everybody knew in themselves at home to be true of the great injustice done to Americans, it hit the moment. It changed the country in profound ways. And took a few pages from the free speech movement as well. There's historical threads, of course, and you mentioned this. Your book has great epigraphs going back to Franklin Roosevelt, Martin King. I mean, Occupy really reintroduced, repackaged, and, and really changed a lot of the language and the way media could function to get these kinds of social justice movements on the radar. Like you aptly said, you weren't waiting around for CNN to show up or for the Wall Street Journal itself to ask what you were doing. Although they finally did. And the irony is that the media does show up once you've created enough of a ruckus and given them a reason, they do show up. How they present you and portray you is another matter. They did all they could to denigrate and show that it's dirty hippies, it's people mooching and asking for 
handouts. And then they, of course, upheld the idea that the camps should be cleared and the media didn't make a squeak about that. But yes, you start the media yourself and regardless of whether they come or not, you're there. And Zuccotti Park had a great occupied library. We donated all kinds of books to it in New York. It was a real serious movement that revered journalism, information, counter narratives. A lot of ways, Callie Lassen and Adbusters was really big in pushing the 99%, 1% meme. And you know, a lot of the movements that sprouted out on campuses adopted the Occupy language, the consensus organization, the diversification of who gets to speak and what narratives are being told was all coming through Occupy in a lot of ways. And that's a really interesting intersection into this next topic that you as a journalist, also someone that is, you know, in some sense, an activist, someone that's very concerned about social justice and equity issues. One of the critiques we often hear is that journalists are supposed to be distance detached and quote objective but the more we understand objectivity and realize implicit biases and and cognitive biases objectivity is a, a very interesting thing to portend toward or to but none of us are really great at it and certainly the media journalists aren't always great at it and in the 20th century george seldes the great journalist said that the job of journalism is to tell the public what's really going on not the pit sides or to play both sides or to do false equivalencies in many senses, and what you just said here earlier too, is that in a lot of ways, Occupy really gave another direction to your trajectory as a journalist. And what's really stellar in my mind about your book, the book here is really written in that tradition. It's really written in the tradition where, Michael, you're a participant, you're an observer, you have an historical lens, you bring a lot of things to the table, and you divided the book into many interesting sub-components about Occupy. You talk about the economy, politics, climate, labor, tech. You go through a whole list of the things that Occupy addressed and does. So in your mind, really quickly, two things. One, what literally did it mean to, quote, Occupy and then grow that meme in your your estimation? And then how did you see yourself writing this book and looking back over a decade? You were writing a part of your own journey. Well, that's what a writer wants to do with their life. You want to uh, get it down on the page. And I happen to be lucky to live through some dramatic moments. And I I wanted to let it go in a sense. I I never could let the Occupy experience go completely. And people I know, family, it's like, okay, this thing's long over. First, it was two or three years over. Then it was five or six years. Now it's a decade past us. And yet it was so important to frame and set the historical record straight I always felt that I I needed to tell this. A question I asked, and I'll go back to your first question after, but the second question of how to do this as a participant observer, this idea of objectivity that none of us can be objective. And generally, journalists tend to be pretty much more on the side of justice than on the side of upholding the prerogatives of the 1% of what bankers want, what corporate executives want. More people really want to uncover injustice and see how workers are mistreated or elderly care centers are are not treating people correctly or animal rights abuses, the things that journalists set out to do to do to make the world a little bit better and uncover injustices. It makes us by nature pretty partial observers. We do want to see things get better, but the trick is to convey that information and your, your investigations, your reporting with an appearance of objectivity 
so that a reader can trust and have some faith that you're not simply shouting at them what your political views are. You need to either suppress them or at least cloak your views in, in a kind of a language that can reach the mainstream public, not simply the people that you think are on your side of an issue. So regardless of whether I was on the side of Occupy people and the message of Occupy, I think what I tried to bring to the Occupied Wall Street Journal, and then of course, a decade later in this book, was that if you're going to talk about these issues, you don't shout it like you're shouting in a park and you're really angry and you're just going to lay it on. You do it in as measured and logical and and artful way as possible because you want to bring people to your side, not simply set up a, you're either believing what I believe or you're not. It's an attempt to reach more people, I think, and, and present a fair and balanced view of an issue on which you might still have really strong opinions. Um, That's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, objectivity is not really possible. And the sooner that we realize that and dispel that old notion, which journalists tried to inculcate in the 20th century and the whole Joseph Pulitzer and the New York Times ethos that we're going to give fair and balanced news and it's all going to be just the facts, ma'am, the sooner that we acknowledge that and go for fair, balanced, attempting to be neutral, but more an appearance of objectivity so that the reader can feel like they can invest themselves in what we have to say. That's what's most important. Not that you repress or pretend that you don't have a dog in the fight, which journalists often do. We want justice. We want to expose things. But to your first question about the Occupy meme, I think that occupying things, Occupy is a verb. Occupy schools, Occupy college, Occupy hospitals. Occupy was this universal, and I think we're really due for a new version, a new brand of Occupy. We are due for an Occupy 2.0 because maybe not with that same language, but it had a universal quality where you could occupy anything, occupy museums, people who wanted to transform the inequality of the art world, occupy labor, occupy fast food workers, which turned into the $15 minimum wage movement. You can occupy anything. And I think the message has evolved as we've seen this decade with the social movements It doesn't use the word occupy anymore, but it was this notion that, hey, everything can probably be made more just, and there are protests to be had anywhere. Occupy was never a strategy. It was a tactic. And I think that the way the media presented it was this loose, unstructured movement with no sense of where it was going as occupy as a strategy, but it never was a strategy. It was a tactic. You go out you occupy and you draw attention to something that you want to change. And then you need structured plans and and blueprints and strategies for how to do it. But Occupy, I think, has stayed with us, if not in name, then in, in the idea that everything has been up for grabs to be occupied. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On the program today, we're sharing excerpts from a talk given by author and journalist Michael Levitin. He spoke at Diablo Valley College on October 14th about his new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. And we will continue to share excerpts of that talk with you today on the Project Censored Show. Stay with us.
Michael, we're going to talk about the offshoots of Occupy because one of the critiques that you'll see coming from the corporate press in particular was, well, where did it go? What did it achieve? Where are those people now? And the irony is, is when you actually start to answer those questions, there are actually concrete answers. There are tangible people, tangible movements, tangible objectives, and things that have been done and changed since then. And interestingly, the Occupy movement was born on Constitution Day in 2011, on September 17. That's when your book came out, actually 10 years later for the anniversary. As a journalist and a storyteller, you do what good journalists and storytellers do, you bring in the voices of a lot of the cast of characters that are in the story, that are a big part of the story, and they're telling the story too. And so throughout the book, you went through and you interviewed a great sampling of people that you knew or that you were in the same circles of. Could you mention a few of the people and how they really embody the answers to those questions about, well, where did it go and what did they do and who are they? That's great, Mickey. Really good entree to that issue. You could write some personal essay or memoir if you just wanted to give your perspective on anything. It's just you. That was not my attempt. I'm a journalist and I wanted to let other people tell the story. I needed others to back up and, and reinforce the basic principle that I wanted to get across with the book of Occupy's deep impacts. I reached out to a whole lot of people. I reached out to historians, politicians. I talked to Ro Khanna our congressperson down in Silicon Valley, who was one of the Justice Democrats, a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. He was the only person in the Congress that got back to me. I would have loved to talk to Bernie Sanders, for example, or Elizabeth Warren, or AOC, all of whom we've sent the book to, none of whom have responded. But I tried to get as many people who are on this general side of the issue that could comment on the deep impacts of Occupy politically, economically, activism-wise, labor-wise, and weave their voices in, as you say, to give the texture of a story where it's really storytelling. I think that great journalism is really storytelling. It's finally, can you bring us news, bring us the goods that we need to know to learn about new information and new developments in a storytelling way that is convincing and that brings in other voices and that simply carries the reader along. I knew um, that I needed one character principally in each chapter. And that's a traditional way that nonfiction people write books. You find someone to carry your chapter to be the vehicle through which you tell some aspect of the story you're telling. So for Occupy Economy, I found a woman, Alexis Goldstein, who was very prominent in the movement, who had been a derivatives analyst. She had been for years in the 1% and making money and doing high level for, you know, for, for Citigroup, for several banks, major banks. Um, but she got to the point after the financial crash where it wasn't working for her anymore. She was making rich people richer and she saw how unjust it was and how she'd been essentially brainwashed to become conservative. And when Occupy got rolling, she joined and she started Occupy the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. And she became one of these really vocal, articulate spokespeople who weren't out there with piercings and dyed hair and looking like the kind of people that Fox News loved to show the public that to delegitimize the movement. This was like a former Wall Street banking executive type who turned over and said, actually, this message is legit. And she went and they reshaped and helped rewrite the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act. Her work with others at Occupy actually went to Washington and 
got to the people in power when they were in the process of putting together the final act that would restrain some of the bank's biggest lending capacities and was going to help regulate the banks a bit better, they actually contributed to that process and their, their directives were put in place and followed. So she was a great example of the way I could tell the economic impact of Occupy and politically talking to people who were part of the Bernie campaign who launched People for Bernie. Many people don't know that the Bernie Sanders campaign got its great catapult from this viral online Facebook and social media generated movement that was started by a handful, literally like five or six people who all came out of Occupy Wall Street, who knew how fast a meme travels. They knew that Bernie Sanders would light a wildfire the moment his message got spread across the country. And they started this movement outside of his campaign on their own, which became the engine that in the early months of his campaign drove that crazy momentum and excitement around the whole country among 20 and 30 year olds, especially that helped propel him into a top tier to actually challenge Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. So to show these various characters, that was what I wanted to do with the story, let readers see through their stories and their recounting of how Occupy impacted our our current landscape. A Verizon worker who camped out at Zuccotti and became one of the protesters. I told the labor chapter a bit through his eyes, a a worker, a regular rank and file, non-activist, non-leftist guy, but who had a dog in the fight, who saw his job and his pension and his healthcare and all that stuff threatened by Verizon. And he joined Occupy, much like labor people across the country. So yes, it was, it was a great opportunity to chart this decade of change through the individuals who saw it up close. And then of course, getting analysts, economists like Dean Baker to comment, bloggers, filmmakers, activists by the dozens. I spoke to several dozen activists who are quoted and really interwoven throughout the book to tell this story. I would love it to be seen as a way for people to think, how do you tell complex stories you don't make it out of your own voice. You let other people tell the story. I saw myself as the conveyor, the, the person tying the threads together, letting the chapters blend together and helping tie this complex story into one narrative. And Generation Occupy, you're the conduit, you're the conductor, you're part of the story, but you're also building the larger mosaic. You're kind of, and, and 10 years later, right? You're, you're helicoptering out of it. And you know you're looking you're looking back, right? You're looking back at a lot of things, and and look, you mentioned some of these movements already, but the whole ninety nine percent meme, you mentioned Bernie Sanders and the Sanders campaign, the fight for fifteen, global climate strikes, Me Too, and then of course Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and then of course that erupted after the killing of George Floyd, the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin, which was very rare. I mean, Occupy really, in in a lot of ways, reignited some of these flames that had been doused earlier, especially because of the events of 9-11, perhaps. We saw sort of a drifting away to a lot of these important issues, and Occupy really helped refocus and recenter that, ironically, given that the criticisms were that it was too unfocused and it was too much like herding cats. But the way you tell the story and the way you look at it is you're like, look, Occupy had tentacles that went everywhere. A lot of those folks went into the abolished student loan debt, the foreclosure moratoriums. I mean, tell us about that, Michael. Talk a little bit more about some of these 
offshoots that aren't invisible. People just don't historically tie them back. Right. And I think in looking at the media just now in September, some media focused on Occupy, not much. We've had a lot else to talk about in the country, like our completely dysfunctional Senate and Congress unable to push through the Biden agenda, the Afghanistan withdrawal. There's been a lot on people's minds. So looking at a 10-year retrospective of Occupy wasn't central importance. But in the media that did come out, I was glad to see a lot of people making those connections that you just alluded to. The activism that Occupy spurred, like you just said, the 2000s for people who weren't around and weren't who were just kids then and weren't aware. I mean, we had the anti-globalization movement in the 90s, which was really powerful. There was momentum building and people were going to protest at all the G8 summits and the G20 summits of the European leaders. And it was when globalization was starting to get out of hand. It was actually just starting to kick into high gear. And we could see that workers and the environment, the 99%, regular working people, students were getting the shaft at the hands of corporate executives who were shipping jobs overseas and corporate profits were just growing while worker wages stagnated. The anti-globalization movement hit a kind of a wall with the Iraq war. The stolen presidential election of 2000, which is really where I like to start the Occupy story, because it was the beginning of this sense of widespread recognition that our democratic, supposedly just, you know, republic, our, our, our system is actually really deeply corrupt at its core when the, when the Supreme Court handed the, the stolen 2000 election to George W. Bush, who became our president. What Donald Trump has talking about a stolen election is you know, not one thousandth of the evidence and of the reality of the actual stolen election, which was 2000. Our Supreme Court handed Bush that election and we see what happened from then on. He immediately, 9-11 came eight months later, we launched into Afghanistan. And within months after that, a year after that, we're in Iraq on a completely unfounded war based on lies and misinformation. So there are real consequences. The battle for Seattle was in many ways a forerunner to Occupy that got derailed. It got derailed and activism and so many people talking to me in this book, activists who joined Occupy, who'd been in the anti-globalization movement, said the oxygen just got sucked out of the room with the anti-Iraq war movement. We lost that movement. The, the Iraq war started. People protested it for years, but it drew this line where the anti-globalization, everything people had pushing towards, it stagnated and it didn't know where to go. We knew the climate crisis was already real and was spiraling out of control, but there wasn't a real movement to speak of. The UN summits weren't addressing it. People weren't in the streets angry and striking and being vocal like they are now. There just wasn't a protest culture and people felt aimless and like, where do I go? I'm angry at the system. Everything's out of whack, but what do I do? Occupy was the answer. And it brought people in who had been lost sort of adrift in that sea of, of left, of center politics and activism. It created this new, like you say, a focus in the aftermath of Occupy, my point isn't to say that Occupy gave us all these movements. It certainly didn't give us Black Lives Matter or Me Too. It wasn't Occupy. And I want to, I'm trying to be really clear in the book that it's not taking credit for these movements. Black Lives Matter was an organic, what was a, a rebellion by Black and Brown people for basic uh, safety from law enforcement against unjust killings of young Black, Brown people in America. Very different movement. But the way that Occupy got its message out and started and was decentralized, you know, protests, like you say, Mickey, going back to the Iraq war days, 
before the Occupy era, protests had a very hierarchical organizing structure where people in a back room, union leaders and protesters at, at nonprofits and organizations would create what they would think of, okay, here's how the protests are going to go. This is what we're going to do. We're going to march on this Sunday. We're going to spread that message and everyone across the country is going to kind of, you know, say for the Iraq war protests, going to adopt this basic model that we've come up with. You're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we share excerpts of a talk by author and journalist Michael Levitin. He spoke at Diablo Valley College October 14th. He spoke about his new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. Stay tuned for more. We saw the failure of that model of structured hierarchical protests. Occupy leveled the field, said, no one is in charge. Every city, do what you want. We'll all reinforce each other. We'll all strengthen and add to our message. But we are all on this horizontal, that was the horizontal decision-making and horizontal democracy, direct democracy, which has plenty of flaws as a model itself. But it, it restructured and remade the playing field where Black Lives Matter, we see three years after Occupy, 2014, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, which was the launch of Black Lives Matter, it instantly adopted not just the technology, the Twitter, the the viral video elements. Occupy people really participated deeply in Black Lives Matter. They helped fuel the tech, the viral nature of the movement as it just instantly got out to the public. But it made great corrections on Occupy, Black Lives Matter. But at the same time, it adopted a lot of that decentralized, nationwide movement building sort of structure. It took on the phone calling system that Occupy created and various tech elements that Occupy brought to it. And then it improved on it. And you see movements successively improving on and building. People came out of Occupy started this group called Momentum. And I profile them in the group because this group called Momentum, which was started by some of the founding lead organizers of Occupy Wall Street, they recognized that Occupy got a lot of things wrong, which it did. It was deeply flawed. I like to say it was a movement that wanted to remake politics, but it refused to become political. It was a movement that had no leaders and yet it had tons of leaders. It was filled with contradictions And this group Momentum tried to take the good that Occupy brought as protest and reshape it and give it structure and give more pragmatic, get things done. How are you going to move the policy needle? How are you going to get laws changed? And it started this group that became the birthing ground for the climate movement, for the Sunrise movement, which is today the most present Gen Z, millennial Gen Z youth climate movement in the country, driving the Green New Deal. They sat in on the office of Nancy Pelosi when AOC came in. She launched the Green New Deal a month later, two months later. This is the youth climate movement steering that message in America. They came out of Occupy. They were trained by Occupy people. They corrected on some of Occupy's flaws. And I try to show how that 
real line you can follow from Occupy to the Green New Deal because they 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 improved on the Occupy structures, uh, the lack of structure to give the current movements more structure. And I think with the March for Our Lives, the anti-gun violence movement, they had real laws they wanted to pass. They got Florida laws to pass. They have effectively changed the dynamic for the beginning of the end for the National Rifle Association, the NRA, which is not coming back again in the way it was. It was a powerful, supremely powerful organization before that that group sort of delegitimized it and ignited these nationwide marches and the climate strikes and Me Too and these many movements, indivisible with its nationwide decentralized protests against Republicans' effort to repeal Obamacare during the first year of the Trump presidency. Those protests had a very Occupy-like decentralized structure. And the Women's March also, which happened in hundreds of cities. No one was in charge, but it had this real grassroots effort. And all of that, none of that existed before Occupy. So you can't credit the movement for creating it, but you have to acknowledge that it gave, it created the ground for these messages and the message of the 1% and 99%, which in its own way was expressed through even Me Too. It's hard to see where's Me Too connect to Occupy. Well, who were the people who were the abusive white males? They were the 1%. They were the Harvey Weinsteins and the Bill O'Reilly's and the Roger Ailes of, of Fox News. They were the untouchable 1% who had been delegitimized because Occupy taught Americans that the 99% and the 1%, that message, the us versus them, the great majority versus a tiny minority at the top, they had laid the ground so that Americans were ready when women said enough by this abuse from the 1% white male, sexist, chauvinist, everything else, not giving us equal pay, treating us badly. That message that Gloria Steinem and feminists took hold of to help propel the Me Too movement, it really built on this delegitimization of the 1% that Occupy had done. This is not me speaking. This is people I talked to for the book. Uh, who really talked about that. People like feminist Susan Griffin, who I interviewed for the book and others. So it had these long lasting impacts that I think you're right, Nikki. Most people are not looking at our current landscape and reflecting on a decade ago Occupy. But that's my attempt with this book is to give us that frame. Michael, you do a really good job of it. I certainly encourage folks to check out the book if they can, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, Counterpoint Press. Michael Levitin, Amidst the corporate media's first ignoring Occupy, then dismissing it, then labeling it as a bunch of ragtag anarchists, losers, hippies, drug addicts, you know, the same tactics that historically have been used against social and political movements, particularly on the left. Interestingly enough, the corporate media eventually couldn't ignore it, and so they became obsessed with attacking what they thought Occupy was in a series of straw person ad hominems, etc., but where we can see that Occupy was really making a difference is in the very efforts to deny, discredit, ignore. If Occupy wasn't making any inroads, the establishment wouldn't have really had to have paid attention. But not just the media, but police, and this is all during a Democratic administration. So I know that you've called out Republicans and conservatives and so on, but Occupy was about the whole establishment. It's not an accident that Occupy sprouted out during Obama after he just bailed out all the banks. It's not an accident Black Lives Matter become a big movement during a Black person's presidency because Obama being Black didn't change systemic or structural racism in the United States. 
And so one thing I wanted to hit upon that really clearly shows the fear of the establishment was that the police state really cracked down on Occupy. I know in Oakland, Oakland Police Department had a lot of infiltration. They infiltrated protesters. They shot people like Scott Olson in the face with tear gas canisters, seriously injuring them. He won a multi-million dollar lawsuit from Oakland. That doesn't get paid a lot of attention to either. Is that there was a lot of violence that was meted out against Occupy. Definitely. And I think I think now we're really aware of that post-Trump. I mean, we got it in the face for the last year and a half of Trump, certainly during the summer of 2020, everything that culminated in, the, in his Bible photo op and, and the clearance of people in Washington, D.C., that was the epitome and the moment that we saw what our police state, the violence that they've unleashed on civil disobedience and nonviolent protesters. But I think Occupy was the first in the modern period. I think the Iraq war, there were protests, but we didn't have tanks in the streets and police with paramilitary gear that had just come back using the same weaponry from Iraq and Afghanistan and indiscriminately clubbing, beating, jailing, 7,000 arrests during Occupy. This is a movement that had, they think, about 300,000 participants only. We've got a country of 300 million and 300,000, that's 0.1% of the country participated. Not very many that actually got involved. And yet the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, NSA, the big federal agencies, along with police departments, had federally coordinated calls. We know all about it. We reported it back then. And as you say, it was a threat to the establishment. We were asking people to question the basis of our unjust, capitalist, anti-democratic at its root system that isn't looking out for the little guy that is designed in its nature to maintain power in the 1% where they write the laws and enforce the laws and the revolving door from Wall Street to Washington where your regulators at the Treasury just came from Citibank and Bank of America and it's all one big cabal. That's a rather subversive message. And yes, in the camps, they didn't help themselves by becoming kind of chaotic undertakings. I think that if people had gone indoors and gotten into back rooms and become strategically, all right, how are we going to evolve this message? I mean, that's fundamentally what Occupy didn't do. It didn't grow out of this more anarchist looking encampment style movement. It stayed there and it waited and the police came and they cleared the camps. City after city, Denver, LA, Chicago, New Orleans. We watched it happen. It was a wave that finally came to Manhattan and cleared out Zuccotti Park. And without a place, the movement didn't have anywhere to go. And it sort of from there dissipated really quickly. But I think that what we saw and what, what white America saw, which of course, black America and brown America have known all along, but white America saw white college girls getting pepper sprayed in the face and white 22, 23, 24-year-old middle-class kids who'd gone down to the park getting jailed, beaten, maced, and, and really their democratic right to peaceably assemble suppressed. And I think that it woke up the country that, whoa, we have a police state issue. We hadn't realized it before. Now we do. Now we realize that the banks themselves chase J.P. Morgan Chase put $4 million into the New York City Police Department the second week of Occupy during October of 2011 when it saw the threat that this could lead. What are they going to do? Shut down our banks? They didn't know what the movement would mean. So it really was the police state emerging into view 
with the help of all this paramilitary gear and putting tanks out there. And then we saw it really in real life action three years later when Black Lives Matter sprang into view in Ferguson and nationwide. And you saw paramilitary guys with gunners on the tops of tanks rolling through a Missouri city, the kind of completely out of control imagery that then was only made more out of control in the Trump era. So I think we've, we, we Occupy was the beginning of seeing just that we've entered this new period of direct challenge to the power establishment, whether it's military or, or financial. Michael, thank you for everything you. that you do and that you're doing for our students. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the ties for the master thief. Combine, conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach. All potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We